Okay, we're, um, we're continuing this morning with a series in Jonah. If you do have your Bible open, do keep it open to the, the Jonah scripture. That's where we're going to start out. And as I said last week, we're, we're believing for at least six, potentially up to eight weeks in Jonah. And the most common response I've had when I've said that is, is actually just what Clive just did, which is the raise of the eyebrows. Eight weeks in Jonah? How on earth are you going to make eight weeks in Jonah? And uh, let me tell you, we're going to manage. We will manage. There's so much to be said uh, from the book of Jonah. And uh, last week, just as a brief word of recap, we saw Jonah's call as a prophet. Jonah was called by the Lord to deliver a message to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And for various reasons, primarily to do with his own struggle with uh, the people of Nineveh who were unbelievably barbaric, the greatest enemy Israel had at the time for various reasons. Jonah didn't want to respond to the prophetic call and so he did exactly the opposite thing. Uh, He ran from the call of God on his life. And I introduced this series as a series which I I want us to focus throughout this series on salvation. What salvation is, how God brings it about, because I believe and I hope that this year for us is going to be a year where we all discover a deeper measure of salvation, which is a, a biblical word for rescue, and where we see God begin to pour out his rescue, not just into us, but through us. And I just want to encourage you as a really simple practice, just to write down in a journal somewhere on your, on your phone notes or whatever, an area or a few areas in your life where you want to see salvation. And then to write down a few people through, in whose lives you want to also this year see salvation. And at the end of the year, we can come back and we can see what has God done. Now, Jonah's rebellion isn't neutral. Jonah's rebellion leads him into a significant set of circumstances. It leads him into strife, leads him into a storm. And what I want to do today is to use this metaphor of a storm, and I don't think I'm I'm taking this uh, out of context, and even if I am, Tim Keller did it, so it must be okay, right? Uh, I want us to look through Jonah at, 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 at the the fact that we all face storms. I want to look at this idea of what it means to be a person who experiences and who faces storms. I want to reflect on that today because storms of life can make or break us. I've seen people who who seem to have sure and certain faith. When storms hit, I've seen people waver. And my longing... As, as your pastor, my longing for my own life, my longing for your life is that if and when storms hit, which they will, you are prepared. You're ready, insofar as you can be ready to face the storms. Because I've also seen people through storms come into a much deeper knowledge of God. I've seen people thrive and flourish in storms when externally it seemed like no such thing was possible. So why don't we pray as we begin and ask God to do that in us. Lord God, you are able. 
you are able. And where we're not able, you come and you minister grace. You pour out grace and love and even joy. And my prayer this morning is that for those of us who are now facing storms and for those of us who will be facing storms in days and weeks, months, years to come, you'd pour out grace. The grace of Jesus which was shown at the cross. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. This is chapter one, verse four. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. It's very clear that the reason, maybe this is the first question we need to ask today. Why do we face storms? Why is Jonah in a storm? Well, it says here very clearly, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The reason that Jonah specifically finds himself in a storm is that the Lord sends a wind on the sea. The the word order in the original language, which is Hebrew here, is is actually shifted. It's turned around uh, from the way that you would expect this sentence to be written so that the Lord is the first word in the sentence. Almost as if to emphasize that this was, for Jonah, this storm was God's doing. God was the architect of the storm. And the word there, sent, is the same word. It literally means hurled like a spear. Threw, hurled, chucked. God threw a great windstorm upon the sea. It was a great windstorm. The word in the, in the Hebrew is gedalah. And that's the same word that's used to describe Nineveh just a couple of verses earlier. Verse two, go to the great city, the Gedala city of Nineveh. And what the uh, text is telling us is that if Jonah won't go to the great city, he will go into the great storm. This storm for Jonah is a result of his rebellion directly. And it is a powerful storm. What do we read? The boat. What about the poor boat? The ship that he found to take him to Tarshish, it said. It was such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now what what actually, and I think it comes across there in the English, but even more so in the Hebrew, this idea is that the ship is personalized. Uh, the writer of Jonah that personalizes the ship, it becomes a, not just an object, but a, th- a being. So literally, you might want to say, the ship expected itself to crack up. Or uh, my favorite, my, the favorite way of saying that, that I read this week, the ship was about to become a nervous wreck. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? <clears throat> I'll have a pun. Now, the Hebrew at the end of verse four, you see, he's building a picture here of... Um, this is violent. This is a violent happening. And it's, it's, already, it's communicated not just through the words, but through the, uh, the language, the tone. The, the words at the end of verse four sound like waves crashing. Hishabah lehishabah. Hishabah lehishabah. Say that. Hishabah lehishabah. You're back at school. How's it feel? Hishabah lehishabah. 
Sounds like waves crashing. The author is giving us a sense here of motion, of movement. This is a brutal and massive storm that Jonah is taken into. Why did the Lord send the storm? Clearly, the Lord sent the storm as a consequence of Jonah's actions. This is sort of like cause and effect. Jonah runs, and so God sends a storm. And one of the clear themes in the Bible is that every act of disobedience to God's perfect law has some kind of consequence bound up with it, bound up within it. Every act of disobedience has a storm attached to it. So in this case, clearly Jonah is culpable. The great storm follows as a consequence of his great disobedience. He's made an attempt to escape from the presence of the Lord. And it's almost like the Lord is saying, not so fast. You can't run away from me, just so you know that I'm also a God who can find his way to a ship bound for Tarshish. Here I am. And God shows up in a way, in the form of a storm, if you like, that Jonah doesn't expect. And Tim Keller uh, puts it a little like this. He says, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is a result of sin. That's important to say that. But it does teach that every sin brings you into difficulty. And much of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, you read this in Proverbs, some in Psalms, Ecclesiastes, places like that, teaches this idea that every sin, every, not just act, but state, every um, decision of disobedience has some kind of storm attached to it. For example, if we habitually choose to mistreat our bodies with what we eat, with maybe a, a lack of exercise, we will find, we cannot expect to have perfect health. It stands to reason, we understand that. If we treat others badly, consistently, we cannot expect to have good relationships. We can't live as individuals and and expect to have a functioning society. There are examples of how acts of disobedience have in them, written into them, consequences. But this doesn't answer the question, why? God sent the storm. And many of us here, we run ahead and we say, well, clearly, God sent the storm. And this is perhaps, if I'm honest, what I started doing in the beginning of the week. God sent the storm because he, he wanted to punish Jonah. He was angry. You know, ah, oh, just the rage. God was bristling and bubbling with rage. And he wanted to rebuke Jonah. And so he sent the storm. I think to run ahead to an interpretation like that is to completely misunderstand the nature and character of God. I was shocked this week how quickly I went there. God doesn't send this storm to punish Jonah. God sends this storm to purify Jonah, to awaken Jonah. As we see later in the text, Jonah's asleep. 
Physically, he's asleep, but more than physically, he's asleep to the voice of God, to the nature of God, to the character of God, and he needs to be woken up. And sometimes the only thing that will wake us up is a storm. This is often what God uses the storms of life to do. This is how he's used the storms of life in my life. I'm sorry I keep telling you the same stories. I am trying to live life uh, and have more stories, but when it's stories of disobedience, maybe you'll be thankful that I'm harking back. Uh, Really, there are are, uh, recent ones as well, but there was a period of my life where I, I lived in flagrant disobedience to the voice and the call of God in my life. Not just kind of momentary disobedience, which, you know, I'm given to do in an average week. <laughs> if you spend any time around me in the week, um, particularly if you sort of bug our home, I, I, I parent quite well when others are around, <clears throat> just so you know. Um, but when people aren't there, I, I can be very disobedient in many different ways. But there was a period in my life where I was consistently, I lived, with, I lived in a settled state of disobedience. In fact, it was intentional. I was running from God. And for me, that had to do with um, the kind of relationships I formed, the way that I was living within those relationships. It was lifestyle stuff, but, but, but beneath the lifestyle was something deep, way deeper. It always is, isn't it? It was like a... I don't know what I can say on a Sunday morning. In the evening, I know what I'd say. Um, it was a settled sense of disobedience. It was a rebellion. It was like, you watch. I, it, when I was a kid, I, well, my dad was a vicar. I remember as a really young kid, one of the teachers in the playground saying, you can't do that, you're the vicar's son. And my response was, you watch me. That was how I felt towards God in that time. You watch me. And what came from that period was shipwreck. Those decisions led me to a place of such brokenheartedness. And it wasn't because God was not giving me what I wanted. He allowed me to have what I wanted. It was that what I wanted broke me. God allowed, maybe he sent a storm into my life. And here's the thing, I'm so grateful he did. Because without that storm, I wouldn't have come home. I wouldn't have returned to my senses. I wouldn't have come back to him. And the Bible speaks about this kind of storm as discipline. Hebrews 12 says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Many people in the church, early church, did and still do. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Goes on to say, verse 11 of Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. 
but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Being trained by it, the, the Greek word there is gymnazo, or from which we get the word gymnasium. Sometimes God sends these, allows these storms to take us into the gym, to build strength, to help us realize where we need to change. I needed to be disciplined. I needed to be trained. But discipline is not the same as punishment. It is refinement. Sometimes the storms of life, the things that God allows us to go through will hurt us. But you know that God might allow, he might hurt us, but he will never harm us. And there is a difference. God's intention is to purify, to bring life. It says, we read on, all the sailors were afraid. No kidding. And each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. In case we think that the only reason we enter into storms is because of our own disobedience, here we have the sailors who, as far as we're aware, have done absolutely nothing wrong. Now, I'm sure they weren't morally perfect. You know, they were, uh, they, they were pagan sailors. They didn't yet know of God. By, by the way, by the end of the passage, they are worshipping God. They move from fear of the storms to fear of the Lord. We'll talk a bit more about that next week. But these pagan sailors are guiltless as far as Jonah's concerned. They're, they're just doing their thing, going about their business, and this guy rocks up. And all of a sudden, they're caught in the midst of this storm, and often this is exactly what it's like. We get caught in the midst of a storm that has nothing to do with us. It's not something to do with the discipline of God. It's nothing that issues from our own behavior. It just happens. And the Bible is also full of stories like this. Some of you, if you're reading Bible in a year at the moment, as Amy is, you're in the midst of Job. The example, the ultimate example of somebody who's guiltless before God. And yet faces unimaginable storms. What about Jesus? Guiltless. Not just guiltless, but sinless. No disobedience, but because of his obedience, he's led into storms. It's clear that we can't draw a straight line between the reality and the presence of storms in our lives and our own sin. To do so is to make a major error, a massive, massive error. Keller says this, most often the storms of life come upon us not as the consequence of particular sin, but as an unavoidable consequence of living in a fallen, troubled world. I have seen people struggle and almost move to a point of rejecting God because they, they wrongly come to a place where they, they feel God cannot be good because of the reality of a storm in their lives, failing to see that it isn't that God's sending this at all. They're just caught in the midst of the warfare of the reality of a broken and troubled world. And we're all subject to that. And having a Bible, doing an Alpha course, getting baptized, becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't give us a free pass. If anything, Jesus says that if you become a disciple of his, You get the storms everyone else gets and you're also liable to be persecuted for your faith if you're doing it right. The life of following Jesus is never going to be easy. There are storms out there 
that are a consequence of just of the fact that we live in a broken world. Now there's good news, God enters into the broken world. He himself is broken by the broken world to give us a way out of the broken world, but we can't expect, here's what I want you, I want to, I want to reframe expectations here. Life is difficult. I'm speaking now particularly to the young ones here. I have seen, particularly amongst younger generations, almost a shock when, thing, when difficult things hit. It's almost like, what? What? It, I didn't sign up for this. It's like consternation. Surprise, more than surprise. Life is really, really difficult. And often it is the people who least deserve it who are impacted by, by storms. Jesus says to his disciples, pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The clear implication is that there is a battle afoot and that his kingdom in some ways might not come, that his will might not be done, or that his kingdom might be contested, that his will might be affronted. Now we believe, don't we, that God is sovereign. We believe that ultimately the universe and creation is being drawn, and particularly through the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb is being drawn to his full and final purposes of redemption. He is bending everything to himself, to his own glory. He is making all things new. And yet, not clearly, not every outcome fits the pattern that he might prescribe. Does he will his people to be persecuted? Does he will any human to experience cancer? Was death part of his plan? No. It grieves him. It breaks his heart when somebody's overcome by depression. It grieves him and it breaks his heart when a young person takes their own life. It grieves him. It's not his plan. It's not his purpose. The sailors do what they can. They throw the cargo overboard. They cry out to their gods, but it's futile. They're powerless to do anything. And so eventually they go down to Jonah, who's taking 40 winks. But Jonah had gone below deck, verse 5, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. In the Greek translation, I don't know if you're interested in this stuff, but I'm really just trying to prove to you that I've done some work. (laughs) In the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew, there's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in that Greek translation, somebody's added in a little comment and it says that he was snoring. <laughs> so there you go. Jonah, imagine Jonah snoring. It's, it's a deep sleep. Jonah here is deep inside the hold of the ship. He's snoring. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? How can you be snoring? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. In other words, Jonah, 
all hands on deck. But we're out of solutions here, so we're down to prayer. Are you got anything? Anyone you can call on, Jonah? And the image of the sailors calling out in desperation brings to mind the gospel that we had read to us. The disciples on the ship, on the boat rather, crying out, going down into the depths of the boat to find Jesus. And the resonances are clear. Huge echoes of Jonah. We have a terrified crew. Not pagan sailors, but disciples. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you're not, Jewish people weren't a seafaring people. Now, the fishermen, now there were fishermen as the disciples, and they were used to going aboard. Uh, they were used to going on boats, but most Jewish people would have been, com- uh, to use an intentional pun, would have been completely at sea, at sea. They would have not known what the heck was going on, and particularly when you add in a storm. Fair weather sailors at best. And for the Jewish people, because of their maybe separation from this world, sea uh, naturally stood for evil and chaos. So when, these, when the storm hits the disciples, they're feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling that they're being confronted by the evil and chaos of the world. This is more than just a metaphor for them. It's a living reality and they are in fear of death. They're seeing the dark powers that threaten to overcome them and overcome God's good creation. And they cry out for help. They are increasingly panicked, just like these pagan sailors on the boat. There is a sense of panic in the midst of it all. And here we have somebody sleeping in the depths of the boat. Teacher, they say. And I'm going to read this from the NRSV version because there's a... a, a, an overlap here. It says, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? It's the same word, I don't put too much in this, but in this translation, the same word that we saw back in the story of Jonah. We're all gonna perish. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? The disciples ask a fundamental theological question one that we are given to ask, particularly in times of difficulty. Teacher, rabbi, God, do you care? I mean, do you care? Do, do you give a rip? Yeah, there you are in heaven. That must be nice up there. Look at me. Look at what I'm facing. Do you care? Do you care? The first question we ask when we suffer, when the disciples are asking is, is God good? Does he care? And often there's a second question that comes with it, is, and it's the question, is God able? Is he good? And is he able? Can he do anything? Yes, and so a lot of people say, well, he's good, he's kind, he's sort of like... You know, your nice grandpa. It's nice to have him in the room, but fundamentally he's powerless. Maybe at the end of time, he'll come and make it all right. But right now, in the gritty, hard world that we all face, you may as well have grandpa at the wheel for all the good that God could do. This is the primal temptation that we humans faced in the garden. This is what the serpent whispers into the ear of Adam and Eve. Question his goodness. 
question as good as, did God really say? God wouldn't, oh, God wouldn't say that. Of course he's not good. The things that he prohibits you, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The serpent questions the goodness of God and that is the beginning of the slippery slope into chaos. How many of us have done that, have questioned, have allowed the storms to call into question the goodness of God, the ability of God. And I understand, I feel that temptation myself. We all do. It is a human temptation. It is written into the the fabric of us as broken and finite humans. Jesus has yet to show the disciples he's about to do it, that he is both good and he is able. What does he do? What do we read? Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that we're perishing? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. He's annoyed he's been woken up. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He rebukes the wind, he rebukes the waves, and to make a nice three, he rebukes the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus acts in this story to display Two things. Firstly, that he is good. He does care. And secondly, that he is able. Now, I'd love to now say, to finish this this sermon in this way, I'd love to be able to say, and he will do that in every single situation in which you're struggling. You just wait, and he will cause the wind to be still. I'd love to say that. I'd love to preach that. That in some sort of simplistic way, All storms will cease immediately. And yet we don't see that, do we? And yet he's good, and yet he is able. What the disciples don't know at this point is exactly how Jesus will go about stilling the storm. They don't know that this journey that Jesus is on symbolized here by a journey on a boat, is a journey of stilling the storms. The storms, as I said, representing evil and chaos. That Jesus' entire mission is positioned and pointed towards not just uh, facing storms, but slaying, but quietening and bringing peace in the middle of the storm. And that the way Jesus will do that is to take himself, to allow himself to become subject to the storm on the cross. That his final act of salvation, where Jesus wins salvation for everyone who's in a storm, is by becoming subject to the storm on the cross. By allowing the storm to overcome him, to overwhelm him. By dying in the midst of the storm. Taking upon himself the curse of the storm, the evil, the darkness, the bitterness. The distance from God that the storm so often brings people. 
His death on a cross is God's answer to every person who is in a storm. It is God saying, peace, be still. And it's in the storm, therefore, that our response, we don't have to go looking for Jesus. We simply turn our attention, I say simply as if it's easy, we turn our attention to the cross. Because it is on the cross that we see a God who is not distant from us in the storm, but who's with us in every storm. It's on the cross that we see a God who's not just sort of with us and powerless, but a God who has taken upon himself the power of the storm and who's risen the other side of it. A God who has the final word over the storm of sin and sickness and evil. And therefore a God that we can trust in the middle of the storm and a God that we can trust in every storm. It is as we look to the cross that we see that God is good because he didn't abandon us and he never abandons us. God enters into the fiercest storm to help, to gain salvation for us. This God gives himself No other God does this. No other God becomes subject to the storm. No other God. This God is good. This God isn't a God who punishes us. This God is the one who takes the punishment for us. This God is good. This God is able. This God has actually already won the victory. The victory is assured. He has defeated the power of sin, darkness, chaos, and evil. He's already making all things new. He is redeeming. He is restoring. One day he will finish what he's begun. And the triumph of the cross and the empty tomb will be written across the whole of creation. And Jesus will come again in glory and he will say over his whole creation, peace, be still. He is good, he is able, and finally, he is with us. Because he has experienced the storms, so he can help us in our storms. Jesus knows the way through. And there are those of us who will experience him in the moment quietening the storm. What a wonderful thing, we believe he does that. And yet there are many of us who are called to persevere throughout significant and sustained storms. You know, every one of us will face storms. Guaranteed. Ultimately, we'll all face the storm of our own death, our own mortality. And it's in those moments as well, we'll look to the cross and we'll say, Jesus, because you've been through that, because you've been through death and you came out the other side, so I can be sure that you can lead me through as well. Why don't we pray?